Hello, my name is Amanda Reyes, and I'm the editor and co-author of Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium, 1964-1999. I'm so honored to be here talking about Testament, uh, such an incredible film by Lynn Lippman. features terrific performances across the board, and it's the kind of film that just stays with you. It's a really haunting experience. Testament came to be in a very specific place in time, the early 1980s. Uh, that was a time when we were in this heightened state of tension over the idea of a nuclear holocaust as the Cold War was coming to an end. When this film was first released in theaters in 1983, it was a singular year of looking at these fears because the TV movie The Day After premiered on television just a few weeks after the theatrical release of Testament. So one of my goals of this track is to contextualize this film and work through the cultural landscape of the era. My discussion will be concentrating on this period. Um, of course, there will be things that fall outside of this parameter. Um, I'm sure I'm going to want to mention some of those things. But just to give you an idea of what to expect, I'll be talking about life during the Cold War um, in this era and how this formed popular culture and a commentary on our collective fears and tensions. I'll also be talking about the production history of Testament. It's pretty fascinating. And as I mentioned, um, the film was released in theaters in 1983, but it was originally produced for TV. It was intended as an entry into the PBS series American Playhouse. And while Playhouse sought to work outside of commercial boundaries and maybe not feel so much like a television production, I think in the way we normally think of TV movies, Testament still has all of the markers of the most common elements of a made-for-TV film, including how it speaks to television's most desired demographic, women aged 18 to 49. So there's a lot to talk about. I'm just going to jump right in. Um, so before we're introduced to Carol Weatherly, I think it's notable to mention that the first voice we hear is Jane Fonda's. Of course, she was well known for her anti-war activism. Carol is played by the wonderful Jane Alexander, uh, but director Lynn Littman is actually establishing a subtle theme here that will follow throughout the film, and that is our relationship with electronics, or, you know, life in a modern world. Um, the Weatherly House relies on electronics of all kinds, and to some degree they create a kind of sensory overload here in this first act. Then once the film essentially becomes devoid of the then most modern pieces of technology, it creates a strong sense of isolation. It ultimately mirrors the silencing of the community and the outside world. And of course here's William Devane as Tom, and we see Ross Harris in the background there as his son Brad. So although Harris is very young here, he already had a pretty decent filmography. Um, he primarily worked in episodics. And in 1981, he appeared in John Sacred Young's TV movie, uh, Fire on the Mountain. And of course, Sacred Young is the screenwriter of Testament. I think Harris was probably best known for his appearance in Airplane, where he has a very interesting conversation with Peter Graves. Um, it's probably one of the most uh, best remembered moments in that film. But in these opening scenes, Lippmann is doing a great job of depicting a very normal middle-class American family. These early scenes kind of lull the viewer into a sense of comfort, as if we're heading into a domestic set drama, one that may present problems that seem somewhat inconsequential and which can be solved by the end credits. And the opening act of Testament also allows us to get to know the family. They look very much like any family in any part of the country during the 1980s. The Weatherleys are literally parents with the 2.5 kids, and they are the very definition of the perfect nuclear family. So Lemon is playing around with the terms nuclear war, nuclear family, and how disparate those phrases really are. Um, in fact, the director does a lot of contrasting a testament, and it begins here when the film drops us into the most benign situation you can imagine, before pulling the rug out from under the characters, and ultimately from under the viewers as well. 
So it's probably important to think about where we were as a culture in the early 1980s. Um, of course, the world had lived under the threat of nuclear war for decades, but it reached heightened tension uh, during the 80s after a relatively calmer period of the 70s. That's because Ronald Reagan increased diplomatic, military, and economic pressures with the Soviet Union, basically challenging communist rule. A portion of this arose from Russian forces building a much stronger military defense position during the 70s, which then made the United States feel as though they might be viewed as a weakened state. In 1979, NATO instigated what they called the dual track decision, which was a plan to give Europe more missiles while also negotiating with Russia to dismantle some of their missiles. Furthermore, um, Fears of accidental nuclear mishaps have been growing after the Three Mile Island disaster from 1979 that involved a partial meltdown of a nuclear reactor, and there seemed to be no escape from the horrors of some kind of nuclear fallout. So several national polls were conducted in the early 80s, and according to the essay, International Reactions to the Threat of Nuclear War, The Rise and Fall of Concern in the 80s by Robert T. Schatz and Susan T. Fisk, these surveys indicate that although nuclear war was seen as kind of an abstract threat, at least half of the country believed that a nuclear war was also an inevitable conclusion, which is really upsetting to think about because poll respondents um, also, quote, expected total devastation and little chance for survival, end quote. These fears, uh, as portrayed in the media, whether the media was mirroring this, these tensions or played a part in creating them, were heavily represented outside of the more complex political realms, and tensions were seen everywhere. So, for example, in 1980, there was a U.S.-led boycott of the Olympics in Moscow, which led the Soviet Union to follow suit in 1984 when the Olympics were held in Los Angeles, California. And to be honest, the Cold War was stamped all over popular culture. It could be heard in top 40 songs like Nana's 99 Lift Balloons. It was seen in sitcoms. TV shows like Benson depicted the horrors of a nuclear holocaust. Um, and it was inevitable that films for both the big and small screen would attempt to capture these fears. Those are your favorite Testament was born out of a brilliant and heartbreaking short story by a woman named Carol Amon. It was titled The Last Testament and originally appeared in a religious publication before it was republished in Ms. Magazine in 1981. That's where director Lynn Littman first read it. Littman had recently given birth to a boy and was up late at night reading Ms. Magazine when she stumbled upon Amon's story. At the time, Littman, who began her career as an investigative journalist, was best known as a maker of documentaries and had already won an Academy Award in 1976 for her film Number Our Days, which chronicles elderly Jewish people living in Venice, um, Venice, California, that is. She told Film Comment that at the time she read the story, she was not working and felt that she was, quote, without an identity. Clearly, the story aroused something in Lippmann, and she set out to get the rights to a film adaptation. She was one of several people who sought out Eamon because they were so moved by her story, which is told through a series of journal entries chronicling three months in the life of a mother after a nuclear bomb drops. Originally, Lippmann sought out funding from anti-nuclear organizations, uh, but nothing came of that. Then she met Lindsay Law, who was a producer for American Playhouse. He said, let's do this. Lippmann told Film Comment that Law gave her $500,000 and almost complete freedom to put together a 60-minute film for Playhouse, and John Sigrid Young was brought on to adapt the story into a teleplay. But several things happened to put Testament on a different path. Young's screenplay ended up hitting the 90-minute mark, and American Playhouse lost one of its prime financial backers. Um, so because the movie was going to exceed the 60-minute time frame, the production would need another quarter of a million dollars to bring it to life. 
So Lemon shopped, shopped it around, but she said although those who read it felt strongly about the importance of the script, they also passed on it. So Lemon's co-producer John Bernstein came to a company called Entertainment Events that was overseen by a man named Lawrence Vanger. He took a chance on the film and gave Lemon and Bernstein the money. So I want to give you a little background on Bernstein. He's primarily a producer of made-for-TV movies. Some of his best-known films include Death Be Not Proud, which aired in 1975 and stars Robbie Benson as a young man struggling with a brain tumor. That film also stars Jane Alexander. Um, he also produced A Fight for Jenny in 1986, which deals with a divorced couple fighting over custody when one parent moves into an interracial relationship. Also in 1986, Bernstein produced Can You Feel Me Dancing, which starred Justine Bateman as a blind woman seeking independence. The year Bernstein co-produced Testament, he also worked with two, um, on two other TV movies, Running Out with Deborah Raffin, which is about a broken family trying to work through the issues that arise when a mother abandons her daughter and then suddenly returns, and a comedy with Dick Van Dyke and Sid Caesar called Found Money, which is about two men trying to find a little kindness in the world. So you can probably guess, based on these handful of titles, Bernstein holds a strong interest in telling human stories, often focusing on female protagonists. And this goes back to the idea that the made-for-TV movie was very interested in telling women's stories as a way to attract that female-aged 18-49 demographic. At any rate, I think it probably comes as no surprise that he would be attracted to a film like Testament. Um, it's so interested in exploring the devastation of a nuclear holocaust through the eyes of a wife and mother. So with production financing taken care of, Testament began filming in Sierra Madre, California, which is about a six-hour drive from San Francisco where the bomb drops in the film, but it's only about 25 minutes outside of the city of Los Angeles. Uh, Testament was shot in about 28 days. That's actually kind of a luxurious shooting schedule, as most TV movies are usually given less than three weeks to film. Um, I think most productions go about 19 days. So Lemon told Film Comment that uh, Testament was heavily storyboarded so that they could bring the film in on time. And they also not only did that, but they brought it in under budget. I didn't say anything. You certainly did. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, Jane Alexander here. Um, her career began on the stage. Uh, she made her Broadway debut in 1963. She won acclaim in 1967 when she played Eleanor Buckman in Howard Sackler's The Great White Hope. Um, that was originally staged in Washington, D.C. She later revived the role for the big screen adaptation in 1970, where she received her first Oscar nomination. Um, she would be nominated four times in total, including a nomination here for Best Actress for her role in Testament. However, while many may think of Alexander for her big screen work, um, she was in The Great White Hope, of course, Kramer vs. Kramer, and All the President's Men, but she appeared in a number of wonderful made-for-TV movies, beginning with Welcome Home, Johnny Bristol, which originally aired on CBS in 1972. It deals with the life of a recently released Vietnam prisoner of war who was looking for his family home upon returning to the United States, only to realize that the town he remembers does not exist. Alexander plays a VA nurse um, he hopes to marry. And I wanted to briefly touch on this TV movie um, because of this idea of home, which is so important to Testament. I don't want to spoil Welcome Home, Johnny Bristol, because it helps to go in a little blind, but Bristol played, uh, was played by Martin Landau, and he is in search of something that may not exist, and Alexander's character is his foundation in the real world, as harsh as that world may be. So in this way, it's such a beautiful companion to Testament, and shows Alexander's penchant for being this sort of anchor we can rest upon. 
And, you know, certainly Testament is about the fear of nuclear war and what may become of us, but it's so much more than that. The subtext of the film can be read a number of different ways, and the themes of isolation, absence, and grief transcend. And ultimately, for me, uh, Testament is about how we hold on to humanity when we are faced with the most inhumane of circumstances. And what strikes me most about this wonderfully expressed message of dignity and grace, which comes through in both the short story and the film, is that it makes it a little unique for this kind of nuclear holocaust storytelling, um, particularly stuff produced in this era. And also unlike so many other nuclear holocaust films, there's no indication that anyone in Hamlin is aware of an ongoing large-scale international political crisis. Their lives are here in the home, nestled in the sleepy community. These are nice, unremarkable people who look an awful lot like us and we see ourselves in them. And all of this day-to-day minutia is completely original to the film. It is not an Amon story. But I wanted to briefly comment on Carol's concern about her son being called to serve in the military. So in 1980, there was no military draft, uh, but it was mandatory for all men to sign up for selective service, uh, which is intended to be used in case of a large-scale emergency. So Carol's concern over her son turning 18 was tied to this lingering idea that the U.S. was likely to go into a war with Russia. And also, just a little bit about William Devane while we have him here. Um, At this point in Devane's career, he was just at the beginning of a decade-long stint as Greg Sumner in the Nighttime Soap Knots Landing. It's an iconic role, um, and he stayed on the show until the end of its run. At this point, Devane was already a pretty established actor. Um, He also directed theater. He worked with the likes of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, In 1978, when Devane was promoting a miniseries based on the classic novel Black Beauty, he said that television didn't really seem to want him, but he was enjoying a major run on the small screen. Um, He was mostly appearing in one-off roles and in made-for-TV movies. And I think for TV audiences at this time, he was probably best remembered for playing President John F. Kennedy in the 1974 telefilm, The Missiles of October. So that's based on the Cuban Missile Crisis of the early 60s. And I think maybe his casting here is a little intentional, uh, since the crisis in the Bay of Pigs was a moment in history that we had to wrangle with the very real threat of a nuclear war. Um, Devane was nominated for a Primetime Emmy for his portrayal of JFK. Um, And interestingly enough, he'd already played Robert Kennedy in an off-Broadway production of a satire called McBird. He made his first appearance on TV in 1957 in a uh, TV show called Directions. And what came of that was a five-plus decade career in TV. Um, The only word I can think of to describe him is that he's simply an incredible force. You can't take your eyes off of him. Um, And in 2013, uh, Devane told Alex Simon in an interview that he's never seen Testament. He thought the subject matter was so dark that he couldn't bring himself to sit down with the film. But he did add that he loved working with Jane Alexander. And he's great here as Tom. Um, I love the complex relationship he has with Carol. It's clear that they love each other, but there's also a little bit of tension as they work their way through the everyday frustrations of parenting and living together. And they also have this really sweet moment that we saw in bed and then when they kiss too. Um, I just love the relationship between them. It's great, um, but not always, you know, like any family. And um, here we're coming to our first look at the Pied Piper of Hamlin production. Um, And we're also going to get our first look at Rebecca de Mornay, who's sitting there in the center. So she plays Kathy Picken. Um, This was a very early role for her. And 1983 was a big year because she also starred in Risky Business alongside Tom Cruise. That was a breakout role for both of those actors. Um, In Eamon's original short story, Kathy is the Weatherly's former babysitter. So they have very close ties to her. 
Fania, however, who we see here in the middle of the screen, is a new addition to the screenplay. She does not appear in the book, nor are there any references to Mary Liz's interest in playing the piano. Uh, so Lila Scala, who plays Fania, also had an interesting 1983 because the other film she appeared in that year was Flashdance. But I wanted to mention here that uh, there's an essay called Nuclear Family, Nuclear War by, by Paul Bryans, and he writes about um, where Carol Amon's uh, uh, idea came for her short story. It came about through a nightmare she had about a nuclear war. And although the story is quite short, it really leaves an impact, and it's easy to see why Lippmann was so taken with it. Uh, Bryans also states in his essay uh, that there is very little fiction regarding nuclear war and Holocaust coming from women, and he said about only 5% of existing literature, at least until 1984, were contributions from female authors. Um, interestingly enough, it was not unusual in the works created by women to shrink the national or even global concerns of war down to con down to this kind of essence, to concentrate on how it might affect the domestic space. And that in and of itself is another unique quality, because narratives uh, written by men were less likely to take this particular route. And, you know, much of the male-centric writing places an emphasis on these other factors and very often concentrates on what I would call the more public aspects of the Holocaust. But Eamon brings it into sharper focus, and like I said, she shaves down the global devastation to its very essence to make it something very personal. Um, and so, in other words, Testament, both the story and the film, are far more interested in showing us the private aspects of the devastation of nuclear war. And because of this, there can be space for looking at how this may affect children. Brian's writes, quote, The children's death, related in artlessly direct fashion in Eamon's story, are made simultaneously unsentimental and even more powerful in Littman's indirect presentation, end quote. So Littman does try to chronicle the film with an emphasis on maintaining realism, and by doing so, she raises the stakes with her audiences and shows them a world not often depicted in film or in much of the literature. It's a very quietly harrowing approach, and it serves to present the true inhumanities of what can happen to us. Also, Lemon's going to reject the use of special effects. I find this to be one of her finest and most thoughtful directorial choices, because while the more visceral images presented in movies like Threads invariably bring the same point home for the viewer, I think Testament presents these things rather quietly, and in that way it kind of seeps into our subconscious. There's no special effect to distract our minds, and we are forced to face the very real collateral damage of an assault. So this was sometimes a bone of contention for critics. Uh, Rita Kempley of the Washington Post wrote, quote, other post-apocalyptic movies, such as Road Warrior, gives us far more to abhor. But I might argue that restraint can serve the same purpose. I mean, what we're about to see is just as mortifying as anything seen in the day after or even threads. It's just taking a different route. But ultimately, we arrive at the same place. And I like to think of all of these films as companions. But of course, now we're coming to the most common aspect of these nuclear war themed telefilms, and that is the news broadcast, which warns us of the upcoming missile attack. This is Cleet Roberts. Uh, he plays the broadcaster here, and he was actually a news anchor for the Los Angeles station KCET, which is a PBS affiliate. He's appeared in other shows like MASH and the miniseries V. Lemon also worked as a director and producer for KCET at the beginning of her career in the mid-70s. But I want to talk about the way the news presents these events. Um, it was really well analyzed in a great TV movie which was made in 1983 for NBC called Special Bulletin. That film was about a potential nuclear disaster unfolding as seen through a series of news reports and how the reports react to what is going on around them. 
Again, though, this approach gives us a larger focus on the disaster. Um, it's ultimately not only about the shared tensions, but it also examples how the media feeds into the sphere, and rather callously. Um, but this is also the last time we're going to see technology used in the film in any kind of way. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's not about showing us the carnage, but it's about placing a kind of microscopic lens on these sort of innate tensions and fears that families were really feeling in 1983. And we just saw our first use of the fade out, which Lippmann uses to great use here. Um, prior to this, each scene was just cutting back and forth to each other. And I find Lippmann's choice to fade out uh, not just as appropriate, but also rather poignant. It's another delicate touch that adds to the fill of the film, and her fade-outs are used very carefully throughout Testament. We're also being introduced to Kevin Costner here um, in this moment of, is it, it's not really chaos, but it's confusion. Um, and it's really interesting because it's so unlike anything you would have seen in the day after or threads. Um, it's just a fantastic way to kind of get us into how the community is trying to hold on to something. And I wanted to go back for a minute and continue my discussion on television as a woman's medium. So while Testament did get a nice theatrical release ahead of its premiere on PBS, uh, the film is, for all intents and purposes, a TV movie. And TV movies like to reflect the domestic spaces of the homes people are watching these films in. It's one of the things about made-for-TV movies that makes them so different from their theatrical counterparts. Because of this interest in attracting this female audience, so much emphasis is placed not only on the spaces and experiences of women, but it also embraces their perspective. And it was at the time a great medium for actresses like Jane Alexander to lead a film. And a lot of actresses knew this and chose a career in television. Uh, for example, Elizabeth Montgomery, who is best known as Samantha on Bewitched, not only used the TV movie to escape being stereotyped um, as a one-note sitcom actress, she also actively turned down parts in theatricals because they were never for the main role. Likewise, Barbara Anderson, who is best known for her role as Eve Whitfield on Ironside, actually said she felt television was the best place to learn the craft of acting. And after leaving her series, she sought out a variety of roles and one-off guest appearances on television. And... It would seem Alexander was fully aware of what TV offered actresses. In 1984, a journalist for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette named Ron Wiskin asked her what her favorite roles thus far were. She said, quote, My favorite character was Calamity Jane. My best work was in Eleanor Roosevelt. It was the most challenging, certainly. I found playing for time very interesting to work in, end quote. Those are all made for TV movies. And she was a producer on Calamity Jane as well. So there's just a lot of opportunity for these immense talents like Alexander to play a variety of roles and work behind the scenes as well. And I think that that's such an important distinction that isn't always mentioned in the discourse on TV. I also wanted to mention that at the end of the interview, Alexander added, quote, and Testament is one of my favorite all-around films. Lynn Littman directed A Little Jewel. And she really did. I mean, there's no denying that. And now we're coming back to one of uh, my favorite, most poignant moments, the unanswered note. This is the beginning of that feeling of absence, which Littman so beautifully and heartbreakingly explores throughout the film. Another great touch added to the movie is the wonderful use of sound design. We can still hear the crickets, but soon even these sounds will die out, and all that is left is this kind of disarming silence in the world surrounding the Weatherlies. And I think quiet might be a good way to explain um, Alexander's approach to the role of Carol, 
It's a quietly strong portrayal of a woman terrified of what lies ahead and the likely realization that her husband is not coming home. Eamon actually opens her short story with Tom and writes, quote, Tonight I fixed dinner and wrestled with self-pity because Tom had phoned saying he'd be staying late in San Francisco. The entire eastern seaboard was wiped out, end quote. Later, when re recounting the blast, Eamon adds, quote, I stood transfixed as the, its funnel pulled life from the place my husband had been at three o'clock. Tom, oh Tom, I whispered, end quote. Um, this kind of plain face approach in the story carries over into the film. It's kind of hard, but it's very real. And I think Alexander really brings it home for us. And of course, here's a nod to those electronics that gave the Weatherlys so much distraction and kept them connected to the outside world. This is also where the voiceover of the journaling comes in, and we're moving into Eamon's short story proper. But also, this is the last form of communication Carol has to share with the world outside of her home. Everything looks the same. Many had faith in Littman's ability to bring Eamon's blistering and haunting story to the screen. Consolidated Film Laboratories processed the film on credit, and again, according to Film Comment, who documented the production of this movie so very well, um, the head of Consolidated Film was invited to the first screening of Testament. It was held one morning at the Writers Guild. Littman said the man was so stunned by what he saw, he canceled his appointments for the rest of the day and went home. Later that night, Testament played for its first official crowd, again at the WGA, and this was the beginning of its fascinating journey to the big screen. Um, so the film began a series of festival screenings, all of which were met with praise and stunned and moved audiences. Testament eventually came to the attention of Tom Letty. He was the co-director of the Telluride Film Festival, and he brought the film to their September 1983 lineup. The screening at the Colorado-based festival got Testament a lot of attention. Uh, the festival was already getting noticed for bringing Russian avant-garde filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky to the fest, and also Richard Winmark was there because the festival was having a tribute for him. However, everything at that event came under this kind of dark cloud of a tragic incident of global proportions. On September 1st, the Russians shot down a Korean jetliner when it found itself over Soviet Union airspace. Over 200 people died and there were no survivors. The presence of a Russian filmmaker, the screening of Testament, and the tragic incident with the Korean jetliner left kind of an air around Telluride, bringing a lot of emotion with it. And so, not surprisingly, people were very floored by Testament because it spoke to all of these anxieties. Um, Sheila Benson of the Los Angeles Times covered the Telluride Fest and described Testament as, quote, illuminated by a piercingly fine performance by Jane Alexander, directed with great directness and unsensationalism, end quote. So there were originally only two screenings at the festival, but another was added because of demand. Libman was stopped by attendees who were seen with tears in their eyes as they spoke with her. And speaking of moving moments, um, I think for me, this is where I really begin to recognize the tragedy surrounding the Weatherleys. So Miko almost plays Larry. He is an Amen story as well. Um, he's the son of actor Edward James Olmos, and he doesn't have much of a filmography, but he made his on-screen debut the year before in another American Playhouse entry titled The Ballad of Gregorio Cortez, which starred Miko's father, Edward. But I want to talk about this church scene. I think this is a great setup for the film, and it offers kind of a contrast between faith and loss of faith, as later we see a much more empty church as the community begins to dwindle. Um, I also wanted to point out some of the great actors in this scene because I think the casting here is really interesting and it serves 
a purpose uh, that really strikes me um, whenever I watch this particular scene. So there's a lot of really well-known character actors pilfered throughout um, some locals, which I'll talk about both here. But first I wanted to point out William J. Schilling, who's coming up here. There he is as the pharmacist. You may recognize him as a mainstay on TV in this era. Um, I think he was probably best known for playing Dr. Harold Samuels on Head of the Class. Um, and he worked a lot in comedy. That's Wayne Hefley as the chief. Um, he was also a well-worn uh, face on television. Um, and same goes for Leslie Woods, who's there in the middle. She's credited here as Lady Mayor, which I love. Um, and both of those actors that we see on stage here uh, worked in soaps as well. And here's Gary Bayer. Um, he plays the shopkeeper. He worked a little in comedy. Uh, he did a few episodes of the nighttime soap Knots Landing. And of course, that featured William Devane. But I'm mentioning these actors because I think the casting choices here are doing a few different things. One is that these are all actors we probably recognize but don't know by name, so they're familiar, like someone in our community might be, but they're also not necessarily known for doing straight drama, which presents them to us in a different light. And so they are familiar and yet different, which is where we are in the movie. Uh, we're in a familiar space, but dealing with an unfamiliar problem. And I think the casting really helps push this kind of underlying theme uh, really beautifully. Also, a lot of the extras which we see in the background of the scene aren't actually actors at all. Lippmann used a lot of locals living in Sierra Madre to add a sense of realism to the film, and it really works. Uh, using extras in this manner gives Testament a neat connection to the day after, which is considered the granddaddy of all nuclear war films. So that film was shot in Lawrence, Kansas, and the filmmakers had approximately 80 speaking parts and gave something like 65 of those roles to Lawrence locals. Again, I think it creates a nice touch. Um, there are, of course, some major differences between The Day After and Testament, and I'll go a little deeper into that later, but as I mentioned earlier, Testament was made for about three quarters of a million dollars, and The Day After was made for about seven million, so it was a really big budget, um, really for anything that was produced on TV at that time. But The Day After was a cultural phenomenon. Um, it's a very compelling film. It seeks to take the national and global income in, I'm sorry, implications of war and boil it down to how it affects the family. However, it opens up that focus to several families instead of concentrating on just one. Um, and as I mentioned, Testament was released in theaters just a few weeks before the day after, making its premiere on 41 theater screens on November 4th, 1983, um, the day after originally aired on November 20th. Box Office for Testament wasn't considered smashing, but it was good enough for American Playhouse, according to Lindsay Law, who was the executive producer. He said that the film grossed about $7,500 per screen on its opening week. Um, this kind of big screen premiere ahead of a TV run was kind of a new marketing tool for the series, which Law hoped would bring more outside funding to PBS and American Playhouse in particular. Um, Law also felt that the publicity that the film generated during its big screen run would help bring a larger audience to its television airing. And the numbers were quite good. Uh, for example, 310,000 people in Los Angeles tuned in to see Testament on their local PBS affiliate KCET when it ran on American Playhouse on November 26, 1984. That might not sound like huge numbers when compared to a network airing of a TV movie, but that represents about 11% of viewers who watched TV that night. I think that's pretty decent, and it made this episode of American Playhouse the highest rated program for KCET at that time. It did even better in San Francisco with 14% of the viewers in that city tuning in. And in most major cities, it caught audiences from about 4% or higher. So unfortunately, PBS doesn't list Nielsen's in the same way that networks do, but it does give us a good indication of audiences for Testament. And the audience was good. Um, I see this as the little film that really could. Uh, 
But I wanted to give a little background on what was coming through the airwaves on the night of, of the film premiere on television. Let me tell you what it was running against on the other networks. Um, on CBS was Kate Nally, Newhart, Cagney and Lacey. On ABC, there was a football game. It was the Jets versus the Dolphins. And on NBC was a TV movie titled Rearview Mirror, which was a thriller that starred Lee Remick and Michael Beck. The highest rated programs for the week were the holiday special Kenny and Dolly, A Christmas to Remember, followed by the nighttime soaps Dallas and Dynasty, and an airing of the variety show Circus of the Stars. So while Testament and the Day After are definitely groundbreaking television, America was still into their escapist fare. And um, I think it shows the power of the films like Day After and Testament to still bring in these audiences and get that much attention. And I want to talk just a little bit about Mako real quickly while we have him here. He's one of the greats. Uh, like Alexander, he came to the set of Testament with an Oscar nomination under his belt. That was for his appearance in the 1966 film The Sand Pebbles. Afterwards, he became an outspoken advocate for Asian American representation on film and television. Then he became the artistic director for the East-West Players. Uh, they're an Asian American theater organization based in Los Angeles. Um, under his guidance, the group tackled several classics, including Shakespeare's Twelfth Night and Chekhov's Three Sisters. And like the actors we just saw in the previous scene, Mako was a well-loved face on television. Um, in 1983 alone, he appeared in seven projects, all originally produced for TV. This scene at the gas station is in Eamon's original story, except Mike is named Slim, and he's married and their son is named Teddy. There's some interesting casting here with Mako, and how it ties into a couple of the other actors as well. There's no indication in Eamon's story that Mike is Japanese-American, but the inclusion of Mako and also Lila Scala as the European-born Fania are meant to call to mind World War II, and again, Lippmann contrasts our ideas of that war as compared to the Cold War, which is far more opaque. I'd like to talk just a little bit more about American Playhouse. Uh, that series ran for 11 years between 1982 and 1993. And when the show first premiered, PBS was working against heavy budget cuts from the National Endowment of the Arts. That's a government funded program here in the States. But Playhouse aimed pretty high and David M. Davis, the original executive producer for the series, set out to present quality programming that was still accessible to a major audience. He purposely avoided elitism and said in an interview he opted not to have a host for the show because he knew the audience didn't have to be told what was good. They would just know. The first production was Pulitzer Prize winner John Cheever's The Shady Hill Kidnapping, which is a comedy about a five-year-old who is assumed to have been abducted. It provides a good marker for the high-caliber, well-respected names that PBS sought to bring to their productions. The cast was full of wonderful and familiar faces, composed largely of actors known for their TV work, such as Polly Holiday, who is best known as Flo on Alice, and George Grizzard, who is primarily known for his work in the TV movie. And that's what made the series so great. It was bringing in these incredible and well-respected names from what might be considered a quote-unquote higher tier of entertainment, that being those working outside of television in a more critically acclaimed venue such as the theater, but also bringing in these actors we'd recognize mostly for their small screen work and allowing them to maybe show another side of themselves as a performer. And I think that absolutely informs some of the casting choices here as well. Testament was the season opener for the 1984-85 season, and there were some really interesting entries that year, including an adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's Under the Biltmore Clock and the shot-on-video sci-fi oddity Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, which starred Raul Julia. And in 1982, Playhouse gave Joanne Woodward directorial oversight on a production of Shirley Jackson's Come Along With Me. So pretty interesting stuff was happening on that show. 
Also, this is Jay Brennan Smith as Bill Docker. I have to mention him. Um, he primarily worked as a child actor, and you probably remember him best as Mike on the Bad News Bears TV series, but he also appeared in things such as um, Little House on the Prairie. He has a pretty interesting uh, filmography. So as Brad bikes down the streets throughout the film, uh, the background changes. At first, when he's with his father, it's calm. It feels mundane or unextraordinary. Now, as he's biking down the same streets, there's abandoned cars, littered front yards, and then something that is actually normal for him, and that would be the Abhart house. It clearly strikes some kind of return to normalcy. Um, this is why he's drawn to the house. And, you know, Mr. Abhart in particular gives him a sense of purpose, which is really important. And, you know, when we see the inside of the home, it's very well kept. Uh, it really does feel like the world has stopped and nothing has changed. This is Lorraine Tuttle as Mrs. Abbott. Uh, Tuttle was in a lot of things. Her first on-screen credit is from 1934. And in 1983 alone, she appeared in the TV movie Shooting Stars and the short-lived series Voyager, as well as several episodes of Trapper John. But I want to talk a little bit about Leon Ames, who plays Mr. Abhart, and he's coming up right here. This is one of his last on-screen roles. He retired from acting after two more appearances on film. Um, you might recognize him from uh, a role he had in Peggy Sue Got Married, which came out in 1986. Ames was actually a founding member of the Screen Actors Guild, and he served as president from 1957 to 1958. Throughout his career, he racked up over 100 on-screen credits. But his career began with regional theater. So while touring with different productions, he was spotted by a casting director for Universal Pictures, and that's when his incredible film career began in the early 30s. Also in 1933, he made his Broadway debut in It Pays to Sin, and in that decade, he moved back and forth between the silver screen and the New York stage. He did a lot of early and iconic genre work. Um, he was in Murders in the Rue Morgue, and one of my favorites, 13 Women. His reoccurring TV work was much lighter, uh, and he was one of the stars of Father of the Bride and the classic TV show Mr. Ed, where he played Gordon Kirkwood. And just a note here about the home video interstitials, which are used as a device for memory. I find them to be really compelling because the device of a video camera is ironically used here as Carol can't revisit the tapes without electricity. But memory exists in other notable ways for her, such as the sweater Carol wears because it smells like Tom. It's another sign of her quiet resilience. And I'd also like to talk about the idea of a home as a bomb shelter. In the book Cold War Space and Culture in the 1960s and 80s, The Bunker Decades, um, the author talks about the more traditional bomb shelters that were popularized in the 1950s, and he dissects the home and the ways in which fallout shelters were designed as a way to represent the domestic space. He writes, quote, the nuclear condition has been internalized. The traditional home armored for nuclear war has become a space adequate to nuclear war with domesticity as a decorative feature, end quote. So if the home was seen as its own shelter from the outside world, it seems totally logical that the bomb shelter should offer the same safe space. Therefore, Testament becomes a place of a different kind of shelter. Carol takes in stray and orphan children. She provides comfort from the outside world. And yet perhaps there's some commentary there as well about how no matter how much you try to secure the safest space you can create, the bad thing will still come in. So, the family is getting ready to go on a picnic, and this scene is lifted directly from Eamon's short story. Um, I just want to read the passage. So she writes, Just a couple of weeks ago, we photographed this little beauty under a corona of blossoms. What a delicate color. Then the other day, as we crested the hill, we saw it again. Apparently, it had come to leaf since our photo. 
but this didn't look like a plum tree in spring. It was, it was papery tatters hung like shrouds from its limbs. And here it foreshadows Scotty's future, um, and it becomes enhanced with the fade out we're about to see. I can't write today. So going back to Brian's essay, Nuclear Family, Nuclear War, he mentions that when Lippmann arrived in Sierra Madre to start filming Testament, the local school was gearing up to put on their own production of the Pied Piper of Hamlin, so she was able to use the school stage set as her own. And that's not where the connection to the Pied Piper ends. Helen Clarkson's novel, The Last Day, a novel of the day after tomorrow, also makes a stunning reference to the Pied Piper. It is only mentioned once, but Clarkson writes, Quote, the people of Hamlin Town didn't know the Pied Piper would take their children if they cheated him, but we knew what would happen to our children when we made our obscene bargain with death. Our political passions were so inflamed that we promised the Pied Piper anything if he would destroy those rats, our enemies. And just as in the old story, he destroyed the rats, and as his price, he took away our children. Here and there a lonely voice protested, and those voices were diminished as fools and pacifists, or even traitors to those who were betraying life itself." End quote. There are other striking similarities between Clarkson's novel and Lippmann's film, including the stories are about housewives dealing with the effects of nuclear fallout and trying to preserve their families. Both are set in a small community and none depict the actual blast damage. Um, husband and wife relationships suffer from the war. Emphasis is placed on cooperation. Um, how radiation affects um, the families appear to be documented correctly. All are let down by authority. And Clarkson and Littman's stories feature people meeting at a church where the doctor explains radiation. Furthermore, there's actually a third work, uh, another novel by a woman named Judith Merrill, which is titled Shadow on the Hearth, that shares all of these things in common. Um, as Brian writes, and I mentioned earlier, only about 5% of nuclear war stories were coming from a woman's perspective. And it's just totally fascinating to me that Brian's mentions that these three works, despite their striking similarities, were all made independently of each other without the latter's knowledge of the previous work. Um, so Merrill's story was also adapted for television in 1954 for the Motorola Television Hour and was retitled Atomic Attack. Like Testament, it's about how one family is affected by the nuclear bomb. The protagonist's husband is away at work and dies in the blast, just like in Testament, and the family deals with the problems of the radiation fallout. However, it places an emphasis on how authority figures will ultimately come to our aid, and it somehow eschews the overall sense of nihilism, futility, and pessimism. But at the core, the protagonists of Merrill and Eamon's adaptation both put the family first and find a way to persevere through the darkest moments. And of course, now we're heading into the darkest parts of the story, underlined here by the flow of shots between heartbroken parents and uh, the children as they know that they are destined to lose these kids. There's such a poignancy here, especially with the little girl in the rat costume right there, uh, because we saw that costume earlier on Scotty. And I'm just going to talk briefly about Kevin Costner. Um, he just shines in this scene. Um, in Eamon's story, Kathy's husband is named John, and a version of the scene is in um, that story. Some of the dialogue is directly lifted from it. So 
you know, Costner was performing for little to no pay in theaters around Los Angeles while also working as a stage manager at Raleigh Studios around the time he, was, he made Testament. So he was just beginning in the early 80s to appear in movies with titles like Malibu Hot Summer. He got small roles in bigger films like Night Shift. Uh, but shortly before he made Testament, he was cast in a John Voight movie titled Table for Five, which stars Roxana Zald, who plays Mary Lynn in the film. But just about a year later, Costner began making waves in the acting community. In 1984, People Magazine described him as an up-and-comer to watch for. Uh, shortly afterwards, he was uh, starring in movies like Fandango, No Way Out, Field of Dreams, and so on and so on, until he eventually began making films himself, such as the multi-Oscar award-winning epic Dances with Wolves. So for this commentary, I'd have to say Costner's most interesting role is in The Bodyguard from 1992 because it was directed by Mick Jackson, who also produced and directed Threads in 1984. This is a really wonderful, heart-wrenching turn by Costner, and I don't think anyone would have been surprised that he would go on to become a major player in Hollywood. Um, but this is one of those scenes, your heart just gets ripped out, um, so beautifully done. But another thing that strikes me about this scene is that they're in, I guess it's post rain, but they've been in the rain. And while this film does deal fairly accurately with nuclear fallout, I'm guessing the rain's contaminated and it worries me. Uh, but to maintain any kind of normalcy, the characters have to do basic everyday things, like Carol is doing here when we see her walking home from the store with a box of powdered carnation milk. But again, that normalcy is flipped on its ear. I mean, Phil is carrying a drawer he has to convert into a coffin. And um, I just admire the subtlety of everything in this film. What if the baby is the lucky one? And with the exception of the rat that we'll see a little later, uh, there are no animals in Testament, although they are referred to, whether it be through the sound design where we hear sounds of nature and then we don't, um, or like here where Mary Liz attempts to feed a stray cat. Animals have been used in different ways in nuclear war films, and I wanted to explore that a little. In Threads, which is a truly harrowing British telefilm about the utter devastation of nuclear war, we actually see a cat dying after the blast, or actually during the blast, and it's, it's very hard to watch. Later, we see two people ripping open a dead sheep uh, to eat what I assume are contaminated innards. In the day after, we see a horse's death in the blast as well. And there's a movie called When the Wind Blows, which is an animated feature from the mid-60s, or mid-80s, excuse me, um, that kind of explores what happens to an elderly couple after the blast. And in that, we hear a lonesome dog howling against the night sky as he starves, although he's never shown. And all of these uses of animals are really well done and effective, but Lidman's choice again is to work with the absence of something rather than showing what is happening on screen. And it fits so well with the rest of the movie as nature and people begin to just disappear. I'm really intrigued with how absence plays a role in the film. You know, Lippmann avoids direct depictions of death and other war atrocities, but the conception of the awful end remains. And ultimately through this suggestion, Lippmann can construct her narrative and use metaphor to reach her audience on some deeper emotional level. And, you know, there might be something to be said for subverting and denying general audience expectations. The only dead thing we actually see in its complete decaying form is the tree when the family attempts to go on a picnic. What we conjure up in our imagination is much worse than anything the filmmakers could have put on screen. Um, so why not let us fill in the blanks and tap into our own horrific no notions of the fertility of the Cold War? 
So Lindman is intertwining nuclear realism with metaphor throughout Testament so that we can experience the devastation along with the Weatherleys while also tapping into our own fears when we are left in the wake of the many absences as they begin to occur as the film begins to progress. It encourages some projection and some self-reflection while also sharing a collective anxiety. And, you know, the film pulls us back and forth through things like this charmingly cluttered children's room, which is an everyday thing, but it's just been juxtaposed against the last scene where um, they have to deny an animal food so it doesn't starve to death, so they don't starve to death. This is what I mean by a film being quietly harrowing. Also, the use of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star in this scene is really intriguing. I think because it refers to the natural world, which is slowly disappearing, but it also may be a reference to Ben Barsman's novel from 1960, which is actually called Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And that's about a planet, much like Earth, that has avoided war and been able to advance past where we are here. The advanced colony offers to help humans with their technology, but decides against that when it decides that the people of Earth are too warlike and can't be trusted uh, to use the technology properly. Now, I don't want to suggest that Lippmann or Sacred Young are purposely making these nods in the film, but I mention these potential references to show how intertwined these nuclear holocaust stories can be, and despite differences, they all point towards the meaninglessness of war. And let me just talk a little bit about Lucas Haas. Um, he was about six and a half years old when he made the film. Um, in Eamon's story, Scotty is only three. Uh, his on-screen debut was actually in Testament, and in an interview with Bill Gerhardt in 2010, Libman said Haas was discovered uh, by her casting director, and he absolutely understood the difference between film and real life. Libman said, quote, He was unbelievably precocious, and I took him aside and said, You know, Lucas, your character's father. And he said, Yeah, he got zapped in a phone booth in San Francisco. And I said, You got it. And I found that with my own kids, they have a very strong sense of real and movie, end quote. Haas fell in love with acting and told the Austin American Statements in 1985 that, quote, even with my first dialogue and testament, I just got into it, end quote. This film got him plenty of note. His next project would be Witness with Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. Um, he was actually cast in Witness because director Peter Weir saw him here in testament. Jane Alexander said that Haas was a quote-unquote mini-activist and that his friends wrote letters to the United States president regarding the threat of nuclear war. Alexander says, quote, he, was, he and the other children are very aware of what the film is about, end quote. Shortly after Witness, uh, Haas would go on to work with Steven Spielberg in an Amazing Stories episode titled Ghost Train. And like Ross Harris and Mikko Olmos, Haas would go on to become a mu musician as an adult. He plays the drums and the piano. In interviews to promote Testament, Alexander mentioned that she considered herself an anti-nuclear activist, but that the film was more than that. Um, in an interview she gave to Stuart Ettinger for the Courier Post Camden in New Jersey, in New Jersey, excuse me, Alexander said, quote, this film puts the whole issue of the nuclear danger in simple terms. If such a war happens, we would lose the dearest things in life, our children. This is a non-political film that very simply lays out the problem the world faces today, end quote. Roger Ebert wholeheartedly agreed and wrote in a syndicated column in March of 1984 that Testament, quote, had political significance, but it was not a pol political film. It was a human story, and it was another reminder that Jane Alexander is a wonderful actress, end quote. 
and she brought a very human perspective to the role. To prepare, she told Ebert in the same article from 1984, quote, when I played the role, I didn't think it out in advance. We worked with a very good, tight script. It was all there. So I let the events of the film happen to me instead of working out intellectually how I was going to respond. I played it moment to moment. I knew the character was thinking to herself, I cannot lose control or I will go mad. And she needed to believe that she'd make it through with her children. I think she always had this idea this miracle was going to happen to change things around, end quote. It was such a good performance that Alexander was nominated for both the Golden Globe and an Academy Award. This shocked Alexander, um, she told Ebert, quote, I was very pleased by the nomination and also very surprised. I didn't think enough people had seen the film for it to have a chance at the Oscars. The movie was originally going to open in January or February, but they moved it up because they thought maybe there was a chance of a nomination and because they knew what ABC was doing with the day after. They thought that after it played on TV, there'd be no market for a movie on the same subject, even a very different movie, end quote. So for her Oscar, she was nominated alongside Shirley MacLaine for Terms of Endearment, Meryl Streep for Silkwood, and of course Meryl Streep was her co-star in Kramer vs. Kramer, Julie Walters in Educating Rita, and Deborah Winger in Terms of Endearment. So MacLaine ended up walking away with both the Golden Globe and the Oscar, but what a great list of women to be nominated with. And of course, Silkwood sits beautifully alongside Testament. Um, that film is a fact-based account of Karen Silkwood, a woman who discovered that she had been contaminated by plutonium at the plant she worked at. Uh, she began to document evidence of negligence, but was killed in a car accident on her way to meet a reporter for the New York Times. So like Three Mile Island, Karen Silkwood's story further added to the fears that contamination might not even come from nuclear war. Nuclear energy and power was already so ingrained in our resources and the cost was deadly. And again, here we've got Brad biking down the street. Everything's looking much different. Again, you see people packing up their things, lots of trash. And I think it's these little touches and what we're going into in the next scene that keeps adding to this kind of torturous tension as the film continues to get darker and darker. In fact, it's interesting to note that Variety put Testament in the genre of suspense. Um, in response to that, Lippman told Bill, Bill Gearhart, Quote, what the amusing thing was that people actually were in suspense. People would come to me afterwards and say, did William Devane come back? I would say to them, not a chance. Are you out of your mind? No, they're all going to die. This is what's happening here, end quote. But here at the church, uh, here's the priest, Hollis, played by Philip Anglum. And just to give you a little background on him, you probably recognize him as Beryl Antone from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But you know, he was a very well-respected theater actor. He starred in and co-produced the original Broadway production of The Elephant Man. So he came to that play while working in a small London theater and he helped to develop it um, and moved it to New York. In 1982, he won a Tony for his performance. That led to a television production of the film, which was nominated for an Emmy. Uh, the part of John Merrick, of course, is famously played without makeup. So the success of Elephant Man allowed England the luxury of picking and choosing roles for film and television, and also on stage. Um, the year he made Testament, he put on a one-man play in L.A. called Judgment, which the L.A. Times described as being about wartime cannibalism. He then landed a role playing Richard Chamberlain and Rachel Ward's son in The Thornbirds, and then he was cast in Testament. He said in an interview with Roderick Mann for the Los Angeles Times, quote, I knew I wanted to be part of Testament as soon as I read it. It just didn't matter that my part was quite small. I find the success of the film so encouraging. It proves that a modest but important work made for less than a million dollars can attract an audience and make money, end quote. 
And Secret Young, who wrote the teleplay, came to the film by recommendation. Lemon told Bill Gerhardt um, in a lengthy interview that I've already been quoting from, uh, from his website, Conalrad Adjacent, that friends thought that Secret Young might be a good fit for her. And so she contacted him. She met with him and then devoured everything he'd written. She was most taken with his work as a novelist and said she loved his book, The Weather Tomorrow. And she said to Gerhardt, quote, and I like the way he wrote about women, end quote. And of course, Sigurd Young would go on to co-create China Beach, which is all about women. It's about nurses in Vietnam. And he was also a producer and writer on The West Wing. Um, so Lemon said Sigurd Young adapted uh, the story on his own, but she brought in an anthropologist named Barbara Meyerhoff to give notes. So it was collaborative in an interesting kind of way. And what came out of it were scenes like this, which highlight a different kind of grief in that knowing you'll never grow up or fall in love. And of course, this is all brought home by Roxanne Zoll, who turns in a really impressive performance here. Um, so she had co-starred in Table for Five alongside John Voight and Richard Crenner prior to making this. That film was about a man seeking custody of his children after his ex-wife dies. Only the stepfather wants his kids too. And um, that's a movie I loved as a kid. I watched it endlessly. Um, but even at this young age, Zoll was particularly interested in challenging roles. She told the Los Angeles Times in 1986 that she liked, quote, doing movies with me because the public can relate to them. And a lot of her earliest roles were for films like Testament. The year after she appeared in this film, she starred in the TV movie Something About Amelia. That's a groundbreaking, complex, and absolutely heart-wrenching movie about incest. She was every bit as good as her co-stars, who were Glenn Close and Ted Danson. In 1986, she appeared in River's Edge, which took a really stone-faced look at alienated youth. And she was a very self-reflective actress. Um, of these darker roles, uh, she said, I'd like to do a comedy next or a love movie, my falling in love, but not another movie that's sad. No alcoholism or atomic bombs. When I was offered something about Amelia, I really didn't want to do it. Just hearing about incest turned me off. I said, incest, no way. Then I read the script. I felt if I could help one person, it would be worth it. In 1996, she reunited with Jane Alexander, playing her daughter again in the uh, teledrama Daughter of the Streets. And just, she's a very impressive young woman. Now, she hasn't acted since the early 2000s, but she does work as a fashion designer. Um, so that means that she stayed uh, in the creative venue. And um, this is probably one of her best moments in the film. It's just one line. It's coming up here, but not for me. And I think it just hits you in all the right places. There it is. And it's such a tremendous performance for such a lovely young actress. And easily one of the most memorable scenes. So we're coming on the toughest sequence for me in the movie. It's impossible to not be completely moved by the quiet terror of Carol as she desperately tries to help her dying child. When discussing the scene, Littman told Gerhardt that, quote, it feels like it traumatized people and that's just fine. That's called catharsis to some extent, end quote. I wasn't really sure what to say here, but I felt that I might want to use this space to celebrate Alexander's amazing small screen career by discussing just a couple of her wonderful TV movies. She's every bit as good in her other works as she is here. So Alexander had been nominated for, or she has been nominated for four Academy Awards and seven Emmys, two of which were for TV movies, Eleanor and Franklin, where she played Eleanor Roosevelt, and Playing for Time, which is about musicians in a concentration camp during World War II. Alexander's movies can be challenging. Um, she's not afraid to make you uncomfortable, and she doesn't shy away from ugly things. Uh, I think this is what makes her TV movie work exemplary. 
So while prepping for this discussion, I revisited the work that reminded me most of Carol Weatherly. She might not always be the matriarch in the sense of how we think of that word, but it provides a kind of motherly connection to those around her in the film. I think my favorite made-for-TV movie uh, is uh, called Circle of Children, which originally aired on CBS on March 10th, 1977. So that aired just three days after she was seen in Eleanor and Franklin. Um, Circle of Children is based on a biography by Mary McCracken. She was a socialite that decided to volunteer at a school for special needs kids as a way to keep her mind off her bad marriage. Her ability to embrace and connect with children who had been tossed aside led her to pursue special education work. McCracken and the film her book is based on led many to look at becoming a special needs teacher themselves. Alexander would reprise the role in 1978 in Lovey, A Circle of Children, Part 2. And we certainly see how the character of Carol fits so well with this, taking in orphan children without a second thought. Another TV movie that Alexander made that I really love is titled In the Custody of Strangers that originally aired on ABC on March, uh, May 26, 1982. That film is about a young man played by Emilio Estevez who gets caught up in the court system after he crashes into a police car while driving drunk. Estevez's father in the movie is his real-life dad, Martin Sheen, and Alexander plays Sheen's wife. The, co the film comments not just on the failure of the court system to help trouble kids, but also about how hard it is for poor families and how they're let down by the system as well because it hardens their children, releasing them into a world where they're already struggling. Alexander's role is that is sort of the beleaguered wife and loving mother. She's torn between the different needs within her family. And Ross Harris plays one of her younger sons in that movie as well. And here we're coming up on one of the most haunting moments of the score done by James Horner. Um, this and going into the video interstitial, it's very moving. Um, just a little bit about Horner. Uh, he held a PhD in composition and music theory and actually made his mark in film working with Roger Corman. Um, he wrote the score for Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980. He did the music for Humanoids for the Deep, another Corman production, and he worked on a number of B films in these early days, including Up From the Depths, The Hand, and Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. Afterwards, he scored a number of blockbuster uh, films. You probably heard him in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, 48 Hours, and he worked a lot with James Cameron. Um, he's in, he worked on some of James Cameron's biggest films, including Aliens, Titanic, and Avatar. He would get eight Oscar nominations. Um, in 1983, he worked on like half a dozen projects, including uh, Brainstorm, Between Friends, which is a TV movie, Crawl, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and many others. Um, but of Scotty's death in Eamon's short story, uh, the author writes, quote, April 11th, Scott died yesterday at 1.30 p.m. The three of us dug a deep hole in the backyard near the browning of rose bushes. The cemetery is unspeakable. Mr. Jansen came and prayed with us. Mostly he and the Catholic priests are conducting mass burials, about 700 so far, end quote. So while we've been building up to Scotty's death in the adaptation, we're already an hour into the film before it happens. We've gone to know the Weatherleys very well, and at this point, we're going through the last third of the film. It's just completely devastating to see this loss. And the teddy bear also begins to take on great meaning, because it is the connector between the past, which is the place Scotty inhabited, and the presence, which he is now absent from. While Carol wants to bury the doll with Scotty, its own absence from the world further signifies this deep loss. 
So the act of absence in Testament is a heavy, heavy metaphor. It applies to the physical being of a child and the removal of that child and articulates this kind of wordless grief, which is felt by the Weatherleys. Any kind of dialogue to explore this would have had a lesser impact. And so I, I just kind of want to go back and think about the character of Teddy in Eamon's original story. So Mike's son Hiroshi was originally named Teddy. And um, I might mention this again, but there's a sense of poignancy when Hiroshi finds the teddy bear. And also it applies the sense of connection, uh, just not just between Carol and Scotty, but it also feels like a tribute to the short story as well. And of course, naming the lead character Carol after Carol Eamon is another lovely touch. And of course, Lippmann and Sacred Young are now ramping up the emotional content. And it was with stunned silence that I remember watching this final act for the first time. In her interview with Gearhart, Lippmann recalls the response people had when they originally saw the film in the theater. Quote, people ran out of the theater to phone booths. That was before anyone had cell phones. To call and make sure their kids were still there. It was really funny. It was amazing. It was wonderful. I mean, to feel that way about something that has value. End quote. I want to go back to thinking about technology and how it's used here for commentary. The home movie footage we've been watching works with this idea of memory helping us maintain a presence when the physical existence is no longer there. But home video also taps into a moment in popular culture when we suddenly had the means to film and capture everyday occurrences, which then become evidence of our memory. And maybe there's a legitimacy there as well. This person was here. I can prove it. The answering machine serves the exact same purpose. But I guess the question here is, how can Carol cling to the legitimacy of someone's existence if there's no physical evidence to prove it? And now she must face the very real idea that Tom no longer exists. It's unbearable, but by the same token, Carol needs those batteries to survive. This is also insinuated in Eamon's story that she cannot say goodbye to Tom because she writes to him in her journal entries. And in fact, she writes, quote, Tom, you are the lucky one not to have to watch our children die, end quote, which is a pretty heavy hitting line. And again, it's this matter of factness that Lippmann merges with metaphor and she does such a great job of it. One thing I'd like to comment on here is this idea of music as a way to not just maintain some form of normalcy, here particularly with Mary Liz, but also to underline this idea that despite all of the losses in Testament, somehow music survives. Fania, in her last push to keep things kind of like things used to be, including continuing to wear her wig, um, I think Lippmann is contrasting the idea that mankind has made devastating weapons of war but mankind has also created something beautiful too. So Scala was a very well-respected actress who is best known for her Oscar-nominated role in Lilies in the Field. She was born in Vienna, um, and as a child, she hoped to become an architect. But at a very, very young age, she also discovered the stage. And after joining Max Reinhardt Repertory Theater, she became an Austrian stage and screen star. She then immigrated to the United States in 1939, her first role was um, as a housekeeper in the Broadway staging of Letters to Lucerne in 1941. She appeared in a number of Broadway and off-Broadway productions. She was in a musical in 1981, um, The Shop on Main Street. Uh, she was in With a Silk Thread, Arms and the Man and the Survivors. Um, she was also featured in the miniseries Eleanor and Franklin, which of course starred Jane Alexander. 
To return to Cold War space and culture in the 1960s and 1980s, The Bunker Decades by David L. Pike, I love the way the author explores how the fear of a nuclear holocaust filtered into popular culture in the 1980s, and in a way it memorializes the era. One of the most interesting examples is in the fashion world. Um, if you are of a certain age and can remember the early 80s, you might recall the rise of popularity in neon-colored clothes. This was, according to Pike, a response to the idea of a gl glowing in the dark because of radioactivity, which corresponds nicely with the latter part of the decade's huge top 40 hit, The Future's So Bright I Gotta Wear Shades, which of course was written and performed by Tim Book Three. Furthermore, Pike discusses how nuclear tensions also appeared in comic books. He cites Alan Moore's Watchmen as just one of the more popular comics that uses allegory as a way to work through the fears. But I'm not sure the Cold War in the 1980s is represented in these other realms as well as it is on television. And I'd like to take a minute to take a deeper look and to discuss a couple of films um, that speak to our shared fears of nuclear devastation. Now, there were a lot of theatricals that comment on these things. Everything from John Badham's War Games, Red Dawn, um, Fat Man and Little Boy, which came out in 1989, that starred Paul Newman, and it documents the infamous research project from World War II that led to the development of the first nuclear weapon that was called the Manhattan Project. And of course, in 1986, there was even a movie called The Manhattan Project, which is a fiction-based sci-fi action film about a teenager who steals plutonium for a sci-fi, I'm sorry, a science fair project. I almost said sci-fi, but it is sci-fi. But in 1983 and 1984, nuclear realism provided a steady compass of sorts to explore the very real devastation of nuclear weapons. I've already mentioned in passing the big three outside of Testament, Special Bulletin, The Day After, and Threads. Of those three, I think Special Bulletin remains more of the obscure title in the bunch, largely overshadowed by The Day After and Threads. But it's great. It's really effective. Um, it aired in March of 1983, and it was commentary in equal parts on the threat of the bomb as well as the media's role in creating fear. Um, in moments, it has a tongue-in-cheek approach to everything, which the terrorists who have a bomb on their boat call out. It's intended to show the ludicrous nature of the press, as they quickly create logos and theme songs to put between the ads while documenting death and destruction. However, despite the overt satire, it felt realistic enough that people in South Carolina actually called authorities because they believed there was a terrorist threat unfolding at the sea docks. Special Bulletin was directed by Edward Zwick. Um, he would go on to direct Glory and Legends of the Fall. Um, he co-wrote it with Marshall Herskowitz. Herskowitz went on to create My So-Called Life. Um, so, in 1984, Canada produced a similar film called Countdown to Looking Glass, where they broke up the news segments with a dramatic narrative. Um, Looking Glass used real Canadian new newscasters, and it premiered on HBO on October 14, 1984. And in between Special Bulletin and Testament was The Day After. Um, that aired in a three-hour time block on ABC in November of 83. It was seen by over 100 million people, and it remains the highest-rated made-for-TV movie of all time. The film opens with the day-to-day -day existence of the people of Lawrence, Kansas, and like in Testament, we see the minutia of several characters before the bomb drops. A huge portion of this film concentrates on the aftermath of the nuclear explosion, as buildings are demolished and radiation seeps into the sheltered places of the survivors. Um, one thing that surprised me most about The Day After was that for a made-for-TV movie targeting most of America in the Reagan 80s, when the country was in the midst of this kind of patriotic fervor, the film shows the failure of not just big-scale government, but also within the small-scale communities as well. Authorities quickly rise to totalitarian levels as people are further displaced and sometimes shot and killed. 
When the president gives a speech to the survivors, all he can say is that America has survived and to wait for further instruction, to which a character responds, that's it? Like in Testament, no one knows who started it or if anyone even won. All they know is that tragedy surrounds them. While critics went back and forth on the film, um, John Corey of the New York Times wrote, quote, no matter what its political content, high earnestness, or good intentions, The Day After might also be judged as a movie drama. By any conventional standard on this, it is terrible, end quote. However, he could not disregard that the film worked on several levels, and he wrote that it was effective. In hindsight, though, I think Corey's review brings up a lot of salient viewpoints, both good and bad, um, but there's no denying that it was not just an effective film, but it was artful. And as he said, quite earnest. It really hit a collective nerve that struck us so deeply. Even Ronald Reagan couldn't deny the power and the grimness of the film. And he began to take steps towards a nuclear freeze and ending the Cold War. Before I get to threads, I wanted to talk about this scene. And I also wanted to mention that Ross Harris is a true revelation and testament. This is an absolutely knockout performance. He's incredible. As I said, Harris worked mostly as a child actor, and early in his career was known as Rossi Harris. He changed it to Ross after Alexander suggested the name would underscore his maturity as an actor. As an adult, Harris would go on to work in the music industry. He's also a music video director, and he directed Miss Misery by Elliot Smith, among other videos. But what I love most about this scene is the physicality of the characters. Brad holds on to Abhart so tightly, and there's a real closeness there. But it's also as if Brad could hold him hard enough, Abhart could survive anything. And if people are disappearing around Brad, maybe this is the only thing he thinks he can do to keep them here. Um, in her interview with Gearhart, Lippman noted that all of her films, quote, are about life on the edge of death, which makes life precious. Around the time the day after was being made, a man living in the UK named Mick Jackson also felt a sense of urgency to portray the horrors of a nuclear war. What came out of that was the British-made TV movie Threads. Like Lynn Lippman, Jackson was a documentary filmmaker, then working for the BBC. Also like Lippman and Nicholas Meyer, who directed The Day After, Jackson begins a story with the everyday lives of the people of Sheffield. Then the blast. Jackson told the BBC in an interview that Threads is a, quote, unbiased, factual, emotionless piece of television, end quote, um, with the sole intention of showing the utter horror of war. If you haven't seen it, it's a real gut punch. Um, it's not just a bomb dropping and some death. It's a long, drawn-out moment in the film that gives audiences every second of agony that might be felt if something like this happened in real life. Like Testament, a major character disappears a little after the blast. The surviving cast suffers greatly through the rest of the movie. Again, like Testament, Threads was shot for very little money, about $250,000, uh, I'm sorry, pounds. The special effects are harrowing and realistic. And like the day after, there's a concentration on the failure of government to help the survivors. Everything grows into this violent police state as food becomes the only currency worth anything. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what these films share. Um, I just mentioned one, the complete impotence and absence of authority. There's no guidance. And while things don't fall into violence in Testament, it's clear by Abhart's slowly diminishing ability to reach anyone outside of Hamlin that no one is going to come and help them. All three films also give us this kind of day-to-day -day portrait of life. So we get this understanding of the characters. Families come to the forefront. Children die. It's awful. The new worlds are bleak, uh, but in Testament and the day after, they are nothing like the worlds that existed before. 
Um, but what strikes me most about these films is where the focus is placed. Surprisingly, though, large chunks of threads um, has the viewer following a pregnant woman named Ruth, played by Karen Meeker. This was an early role for the actress, and she's astounding. Um, unlike Carol, she does not try to hold it all together, but she does her best to keep going and to keep her baby safe, both while she's carrying it and afterwards. Um, the Day After has some strong and interesting female characters, but the film is clearly about the male protagonists, um, all in some role of authority, like a father or a doctor. And the supporting female characters are just that, they're supporting. But for a medium interested in capturing women aged 18 to 49, I, I thought that was kind of an odd choice. But that doesn't diminish the impact. It's just an observation, and it's another reason why I think these films work so well together, giving us a multitude of perspectives on a horrifying idea that could become a reality. And, you know, I haven't talked much about Gary Morello. Uh, he plays Hiroshi. Uh, Morello only has one IMDb credit, but he's been in a number of things as he's been on stage productions such as Kick Me When I'm Down, I'm Dead and A 10 Minute Christmas Carol. He's been on TV shows such as The Guardian and Saving Grace and has appeared in uh, the films Passing Normal and Hero, which was directed by Stephen Frears. He's had a long relationship with the Performing Arts Studio West. Now, that's an organization that offers training for actors and other performers with disabilities. Um, they have trained Morello in dancing, songwriting, and improv. As I mentioned earlier, Hiroshi was originally named Teddy in Amen's short story, and he did not have Down syndrome. Um, the name Hiroshi is meant to recall Hiroshima, but Lipman said that the character's disability was not a factor in the casting of Morello in terms of associating him with uh, Hiroshima. It was that Hiroshi was supposed to be a total innocent. You settling? All right. And of course, here's another really poignant scene heightened by Horner's incredible score. It's just really beautiful and touching. Earlier I mentioned the lack of carnage in Testament, but there is a subtle makeup job as Carolyn Brad's skin begins to gray a little. I think the makeup is there only to enhance the acting and perhaps vice versa, but it's a really another subtle and poignant touch that I like. Um, to give the film a sense of realism, Lipman consulted with a group called the Physicians for Social Responsibility. They're an organization that still exists today. They consist of doctors and scientists searching for ways to create a world that is nuclear free. But although she wanted to have some realistic qualities to it, Lipman's film is not weighted down by a desire to get every piece of science correct. It's a foundation with which to think about how you can take a real situation and move it into a metaphor. Alexander loved this approach and in 1984 told the Cincinnati Inquirer, um, the film critic there named Mike McLeod, that too often these kind of movies get lost in facts and figures. She said, quote, I can't relate to that. It doesn't mean anything. It's the very existence of weapons that appalls me. Radiation scares me. It's poison. And this must have been an interesting shoot for Littman because as a documentary filmmaker, she works so heavily in realism. She also told McLeod in the same interview, quote, I was used to looking for real things, real locations. They kept telling me, we can change the color in the curtains, don't worry about that, end quote. And apparently an array of actors auditioned for the part of Carol, including Susan Sarandon. Littman actually sent uh, the story to Julie Christie as well, hoping she might be interested in doing the film. And although she never really worked with actors, I think she had a strong sense of what she really wanted, and she knew she could get exactly that from Alexander. While they weren't close, Lippmann knew Alexander from their time attending Sarah Lawrence College. While in school, Alexander was already involved in anti-nuclear activism, and when Lippmann was casting the film, Alexander had already read Eamon's short story. 
Of working with Alexander, Lippman told McLeod, quote, I always thought she was the woman. She's the most professional, most disciplined, most thoughtful woman I have ever worked with. She spoiled me. And now Abhart is gone and we're all wrecked. Um, Eamon writes of Brad's transformation, quote, Brad tries so hard to be a man. No, he is a man. He is so like you, Tom, end quote. In its own way, um, an admittedly dark and sad way, Testament is a coming-of-age tale where Brad has to let go of his childhood and not only be there for his mom, but retain hope that he can make contact with the outside world and find community for his family. So I haven't said anything about the lighting, but I have it written all over my notes. Uh, the stuff in the house at night is economical, but very effective. The darkness that surrounds Carol evokes all kinds of emotions and, of course, the fade out. And then it's contrasted with this bright light. But what does this fire represent? It's the burning of her friends and her community. It's easily one of the most compelling scenes in the film for me. It's the only time that Carol really allows herself to lose it. Um, so columnist Mike McLeod wrote, quote, The movie is apolitical in the sense that it points no specific fingers to blame. It is never made clear who triggered the Holocaust or why. And all that Carol has to go on is what life looks like now in this moment. And at the same point, how can one face the world with all these unanswered questions? Um, she has to let go of what she's been repressing. Despite what feels like a very powerful moment in a movie full of powerful moments, this is also a very American story. At the Telluride screening, Starkovsky sat down with the film and referred to it as a, quote, mild fairy tale, end quote, to which he added that he was, quote, envious of the, its innocent approach to nuclear war, end quote. And when Julie Christie turned down an opportunity to star in Testament, she wrote Lippmann a letter expressing the film's nativity. Uh, Lippmann said to Gerhardt, Quote, I really learned that what turned out to be one of my most difficult lessons, which is that for somebody who thinks of herself as very sophisticated, I make very American movies. And I make movies that have almost no interest anywhere else because they're about America, end quote. But I think the way this film explores how once we lose faith in one thing, we look for it in something else, is so wonderfully delivered in this scene. In Alison Field's essay, Visualizing Faith and Futility in the Nuclear Apocalypse, she surmises that the kiss for Carol is an act of desperation and a need for comfort. For Hollis, the kiss means that if he can no longer provide spiritual aid, having lost faith himself, he can still help fulfill a physical need in Carol now that Tom is no longer there. Fields actually calls it a marital aid, and I find this to be a really great read of the scene, which is full of sorrow, but it also has this kind of resilience in its desire to find warmth and connection in a world gone cold and disconnected. There's probably a number of ways to read this scene, but I'm just so taken with the idea of looking for warmth, trying to find hope in something. And it's just a scene that shocked me the first time I saw it, but that the more I watch it, the more I see the beauty in it. Now that we're here at the end, I just also wanted to mention briefly that Testament also shares some commonalities with the epic 1959 theatrical film On the Beach. Now that starred Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Fred Astaire, and Anthony Perkins. It's a sort of flip on Testament in that the bomb has already gone off before the film starts, and the remaining human population is living in Australia, which is the only place on Earth where radiation has not hit. But the military predicts that the country will only have a few months before they will be affected by the fallout and die themselves. 
Through the film, the characters try to live an everyday existence with a few changes, um, like when they run out of gas, horses become the main mode of transport. The most moving scene in the film is when Peck, who plays a naval officer, takes a crew by submarine to look for the source of a radio signal coming from San Francisco, only to find the signal is coming from a freak mishap rather than from a human being. While waiting in the sub for orders to come home, one of the men jumps into the water and swims to shore so he can see his family home. The next day, right before the other men leave, he's seen fishing next to the sub, almost content to know he's going to die near where his family perished. Unlike Testament, the characters are given an out from suffering from the radiation, but there's no happy ending for anyone. And although the actual science behind a nuclear holocaust wasn't completely understood in the late 1950s, this film is a melodrama, and like Testament, it works best when dealing with the emotional impact of the blast. Lemon said that when Eamon's story originally appeared in the St. Anthony's Messenger, she had to change the ending because her characters committed suicide, which is anti-Catholic. However, the ending seems to have been restored in the Ms. Magazine um, reprinting. Eamon writes, quote, Our time surely must be short. I thought to end it for us three together in the garage. Slim had hoped we could use the gas, and that way no one would be left alone at the end. I went out to check the car. The battery is still alive. How ironic that the inanimate objects fare so much better. Such effort to start the car, each movement laborious, slow motion, then back to get Teddy and Brad. Teddy had found Tom's favorite fishing rod, held it clutched to his cheek like a security blanket, Brad sitting nearby, eyes closed, end quote. Just a few words about Carol Amon as we wrap this up. So she began her writing career in Fremont, California, and was one of the organizers of the Fremont Writers Club. Now, that was established in the early 1960s. One of their only rules was that if any of the writers make a sale on a story, they are to get a box of chocolates. Other members of the club were Candace Breedlove and Robin Worthington. So Eamon was also a nurse. She was a mother of three. Um, and in 1971, she won a national writing competition held by Guidepost magazine that led her to, in the early 70s, 72, I think, giving talks on writing. Um, she had a story in 1970 called Hyacinths to Feed the Soul. It would eventually appear in Reader's Digest, but when it first appeared in St. Joseph's Magazine, it became the publication's most popular story. So Libman said Eamon brought her family to the set to watch the filming, um, and they got along and they stayed in touch. Eamon passed away just a few years after The Last Testament was adapted for Playhouse. She was only 53. Ten days before she died, she actually held a party called She Lives Until She Dies. And in her invitation, she wrote, quote, As some of you know, my adventures with cancer are not going well right now. It appears I may not be around to see all your projects reach fruition. Bestsellerdom, acclaim of critics, peers, and friends. While I'm not yet discounting the possibility of a remission or a downright miracle, common sense dictates proper closure or taking care of business, end quote. So Eamon closes out the last testament by writing, final entry, if survivors come here, want them to know something. We didn't act like animals. Most people were good, helped, tried. If only we could have lived as well as we have died, I wish. I think what strikes me most about the women involved in this film, and I mean Carol Amon, uh, Lynn Littman, and Jane Alexander as Carol Weatherly, is this idea of dignity that comes through um, in the film, in the characters, and in the writing. 
it's it really transcends um and and it becomes something more and a really beautiful message about how we hold on to our humanity when we're only faced with the most inhumane thing we can imagine it's even more tragic when you consider it but there's something about the writer and the director and the actors all speaking together at the same time trying to deliver this message that is very upsetting and very hard to watch and absolutely heartbreaking but underneath it all there is this sense of resilience and this idea of holding on to the things that make you human to the things that make you feel good about yourself to the things that matter your family right um, even when they're disappearing around you and it's a woman's story and I've talked a little bit about how TV does that better than any other venue and I think this is a really good example of it. This is a very intimate story about loss and about heartbreak on a level that most of us will hopefully never ever have to experience and yet we're able to like keep going. There's something about our lives that makes us want to keep going and that's kind of what this film is ultimately saying despite all of the tragedy. Um, and it just speaks to me in that way. And anyway, here we are at the end of the film. I made it without bursting out into tears. Um, I had a really great time talking with you. I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, again, my name is Amanda Reyes, and I'm the editor and co-author of Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium, 1964-1999. to And again, thank you again so much. I really appreciate it.